A lot of times what happens is when, when the ground starts to give way and we have this sense of vertigo, like, I don't know what's happening. Who am I in relation to a shifting reality? One of the, the first impulses is to try to leap right away onto some new stable ground. So either people will, will retreat into an even more rigid orthodoxy, or they'll replace one totalizing discourse with another one, which could be like some kind of conspiracy theory or some kind of cult or some kind of religious fundamentalism, because I got to have some firm ground underneath me. But very often, this supposedly new ground is actually another iteration in disguised form of where we're already standing. And maybe what we really need right now isn't to leap as quickly as possible to new ground, but to spend a little bit of time in the chaos and the unraveling. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Lengo Thoughts, shot from the beautiful Crete in Greece. This episode is going to be experimental. It's part of a new series that I'm starting that is going to be called Dengo Discussions, in which I'm bringing two or more minds of the same field or adjacent fields, and they're going to have a discussion, they're going to exchange ideas, and they will debate about different subjects. In this episode, we have Charles Eisenstein, who is an incredibly capacious mind. He wrote numerous books, including Sacred Economics and In the More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. He touches upon many subjects in his books, including ecology, economics, and spirituality. Charles is very interested in the transformation of the human condition. I've had the privilege of interviewing Charles last year, and since then we remained friends. I always value Charles's conversation because I never know how he's going to surprise me next. He always has something to say that I didn't think of before. I consider Charles to be extremely wise, compassionate, and a person to pay attention to when it comes to personal and collective transformation. In the discussion with Charles today, we have Peter Rollins. Peter is a philosopher, an author, and a dear friend. Peter's work revolves around the big questions how humans perceive their condition. Peter is interested in how we change our frame in order to build a better world and live a better life. In his recent work, Peter is expressing a profoundly deep idea. What if the thing that unites us is the split at the core of reality? What if there is no wholeness? What if the thing we feel that we're lacking is lacking from reality itself? And what if we consider that together, we realize that we're one family united by our trauma? Whatever it may be, you're up for a very interesting discussion. This episode is going to be relatively quick because both Peter and Charles are pretty busy at the moment and could only spare a little bit over 20 minutes. But I promise that if you like this conversation, I'll bring you many more of these conversations, much more at length, and we're going to dive into fascinating, controversial, and mind-expanding concepts. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Dengo Discussions between Charles Eisenstein and Peter Rollins. So I'm going to do a, a little intro while you're doing that, uh, because Charles is uh, quite busy these days, and I'm, I'm actually honored that you took the time because of that, Charles. It's uh, it's it's I'm, I'm moved that you took the time. Uh, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to do a, a very quick, maybe three-minute introduction of both of you and what I want to talk about, and then we're going to make it like a very short and sweet snippet, almost like a taste of what this conversation can be in a larger scale. Uh, yeah, and then uh, what I, uh, I will allow you to speak first, obviously, Charles, just in case that something happens and you need to bounce. And then uh, if you can stay for Peter's response, that'll be wonderful. Oh, no, I'll stay. I just reminded me I better turn off my phone, though. Because... Of course. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. So, okay. So, uh, welcome to this uh, 
uh, a new uh, a new type of episode of Dango Thoughts in which I'm having two brilliant minds uh, discuss important topic of the day. We have Charles Eisenstein uh, and we have Peter Rollins, both uh, respective philosophers in their own uh, spheres and approaching life from a from relatively different perspective, but both are engaged in trying to um, mitigate a lot of different points of view and trying to bring it to something that is digestible for, for the public. Uh, and what I wanted to touch on mostly today, it's a very broad topic, because we don't have a lot of time, I figured I'll take the liberty of maybe narrowing it down just a little bit. And then if you guys feel that you want to take it broader or even take it in a different direction, I'm okay with that. There's no problem. Uh, the topic in general is, do we need uh, a new ground to stand on? And um, the way that I thought we maybe frame it, because it's in the zeitgeist and it's relevant to a lot of things that uh, people from all walks of life do, which is, do we need a new ground to stand on uh, politically, and what would that mean? How can it be actuated, if at all, in the sense that do we put more pressure, for example, on the types of people we elect and what we actually care about? And this obviously might, uh, becomes very different from America to other countries in the world, but I do feel that there's an all-encompassing um, change that is occurring worldwide uh, versus just country by country. And of course, if you guys disagree with that, feel free to extrapolate on that. But it does seem that we are going through some kind of a big change in the world and people feel it in different ways. Charles, you obviously talk about this a lot also in your talks. This is a subject you touch on a lot. And if you don't know anything about uh, Peter's work, uh, in, if I have to summarize it in a sentence, which is a scary task, but uh, most of Peter's books and work throughout the years it obviously went to an evolution, but they were mostly focused on uh, people's perception of the ultimate question, whether it's from the religious perspective, if it's the perception of God, what it actually means to grapple with the big questions of reality in a day-to-day -day life. Uh, so that will be kind of like the core of how I view Peter's work. And Peter will definitely correct me in many ways when he's going to start talking. So yeah, what... Uh, I would like to go with you, Charles, first. What When I ask this question, do we need a new ground to stand on politically, what even resonates with you when I ask that question? What, what is the first thing that jumps to you? Well, I think it's no secret that that many people, maybe most people feel that we're, that the ground is shaking or even caving under and that uh, old certainties are no longer true. Um, Old political alignments are falling apart. Um, the what, what trust in government is at an all-time low, at least in this country. Not sure about Ireland. Um, and that this political habitation is not separate from uh, a much larger civilizational crisis in sense and meaning, which is related to, I think, um, a transition in the answers to those questions that you described, uh, Peter, as as exploring, like the ultimate question or the ultimate questions, which, which the, the, the answer that a society adopts to those questions infuses all of its institutions. So when those answers are in flux, then... The, so will be our 
worldly institutions and vice versa. The, the um, instability of, of political and economic institutions and, and ecological life even that feeds into the crisis in sense and meaning. Um, I, I, I might, you know, want to, well, I won't quibble, but, but to, um, spotlight a little bit, the, the terms that you asked the question that you used to ask the question, do we need new ground to stand on? Cause a lot of times what happens is when, when the ground starts to give way and we have this sense of vertigo, uh, like, I don't know what's happening. Who am I even? In relation to a shifting reality, one of the the first impulses is to try to leap right away onto some new stable ground, which could be so either people will will uh, retreat into an even more rigid orthodoxy, or they'll replace one totalizing discourse with another one, which could be like some kind of conspiracy theory or some kind of cult or some kind of religious fundamentalism, because. I gotta have some firm ground underneath me, but very often this supposedly new ground is actually another iteration in disguised form of where we're already standing. And maybe what we really need right now isn't to leap as quickly as possible to new ground, but to spend a little bit of time in the chaos and the unraveling. Um, so maybe I'll I'll like. Just offer that and see see how Peter would like to take it, and then maybe you know we can do a little more of an interchange after that. Absolutely, yeah. thank you for that, Peter. That please, the stage is yours. Oh, thank you. And listen, I really appreciate being on the call with both of you. Um, so it's a it's a you know I've known Danny for uh, a lot of years now. In fact, he's visiting me in Ireland, so that's lovely. Um, but it's lovely to meet you, Charles. Um, yeah, this question. Um, it's obviously a massive one and you kind of want a TikTok sized answer. I know you don't like TikTok sized answers, but we have to for, for, for this uh, this format. So my TikTok sized answer would be um, if, if I was to, in a very crude sense, maybe outline two quite dominant uh, political movements that you see today, um, there would be one that you would call a kind of a positive universalism and the other particularity. And so in terms of a positive universalism, you have people in the popular world who stand on kind of uni universal principles. And often people who are advocating for that at the moment were people who would uh, call themselves on the right. Now, the right and the left, I want to problematize that discourse a little bit, but you'll notice people who are popular commentators on the right are usually advocating universal principles like meritocracy or um, you know, universal access, reason, even the, the term facts don't care about your feelings is a way of saying your feelings are subjective, you know, but facts are universal, right? So there's people here saying we need universal positive institutions in the judicial system, educational system, uh, in, the, in various kind of uh, arms of the state that are kind of blind to identity, that kind of offer equality for all. And then you have others, and they often self-identify again. I don't think it is leftism, but self-identify on the left, who um, take a more particularistic stance. And they are very good at showing how 
supposed positive universals actually often uh, are to the benefit of certain groups over others. And so what seems like just a kind of like a, a broad universalism that we can all access is actually a kind of closed door. It's a party that some people aren't invited to. And you see the this debate going on and you see uh, one side getting enjoyment out of showing the uh, the prejudices behind the supposed universals and the other side getting enjoyment from showing how particularism creates fragmentation and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of kind of those social ills, right? So what if, what, what would be the way forward in this interesting political moment? Um, this is where I think we bring in and what I'm interested in is what can be called the critique of critique. So if there's positive universalism and then there's the critique of that with particularity, um, I would be arguing for uh, a return to universality, but not a positive universality. The idea that actually we all do share something in common, but it's not something positive. We're all lacking subjects. We all desire. We all are questioning. We all have to engage with mystery and unknowing and suffering and in different ways. And actually, that's where we unify. Just like an AA, whether you're rich or poor or, you know, going to university or not, you're unified by a shared trauma and you come together in a collective of grace where everyone accepts you and you're able to accept your acceptance. And when you're able to finally accept that you're accepted and, and embrace the others, you're able to kind of change. So my work is going like, how do you build a political project on not a sh on shared positivity, but on explore, exploring this idea of a shared negativity, um, a shared in psychoanalysis castration. We are all castrated, and and we're all kind of like find a certain unity by being creatures of desire, creatures of suffering, and creatures of uh, of curiosity. That that's really really good. I I, I would love for you, Charles, to respond. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I've I've also thought a little bit about um, having framed it in those in those terms of universe universe positive universalism at, uh, as um, in distinction to um, particularity, but it but to kind of rephrase it, um, you know, here we have. Essentially, I mean, there's in philosophy as well. There's there there was this revolution against modernism, and to some extent, modernity itself, that said, no, this is not a world of objective facts, uh, but truth is a social construct, and everything that we name as a fact is actually an agreement among human beings. Yeah. Um, so. In other would, words, think, would you would would yeah. you agree that I think both of us are critical of that? That's kind of like yes. Freudian kind of post. -truth. That's right. So yeah, 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 you know, I'm I'm with you on that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, it 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 is, um, very anthropocentric. Yeah, it says that all meaning is simply our creation, and it fits in with a worldview that is actually very modern, not postmodern. That upholds humans as the you know cartesian lords and possessors of nature and here we are extending the domination you know into totality mm. and and yet it is also true that if it's even in the word fact uh 
which comes you know from Latin factus or something like that, which means to something that is made, uh, or you know, as in the word factory or manufacture. Uh, it's something that that is made. So there's a recognition here that facts have some kind of relational dimension. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that we just make them all up ourselves. Yep. Indigenous people didn't think that. If you ask them, uh, where where do your myths come from? Where do your stories come from? Where does your knowledge come from? It came from outside themselves, and they related to even a story as something alive. So I think that that we could say. Um, on the one hand, we can acknowledge the relational dimension to our facts and our, our truths, our narratives, but also not pretend that they originate solely within us. Yeah. So, yeah, the thing, because, you know, we've got very much, we're interested in the same questions here. And, and the way I would frame it by way politically is, you have identitarianism on one side and identity politics on the other. So identitarianism, you know, one definition of it is hidden uh, particularity and identity politics is kind of celebrated particularity. But um, I am very interested in, as I say, a return to universality, but I am sensitive to the post-structuralist critique. I actually, I used to be a bit of a post-structuralist in my youth. <laughs> um, and I'm sensitive to the the interesting way in which it is able to expose how, you know, like who's doing the funding when it comes to science, right. what questions are being asked, you know, all of those things, who's got the money, right? Um, those are really interesting questions, but I am a universalist at heart. And so my interest is going like, if you build a, a negative universality, which is in, in psychoanalytic terms, hyst hysteria, that you say that the, what, what we, we're all hysterics and actually the greatest scientists are hysterics. What, what universe, the universality that holds the, the enlightenment together is a radical self-questioning, a radical commitment to a type of, um, uh, orientation towards the unknown, which generates and produces incredibly sophisticated theories and that we that can predict things that can manipulate the world. So my desire is to go back to universalism, but but with a sensitivity to understanding the critiques of of positive universality that, as I say, so often does. I mean, I, yeah, I, I I'm not a Foucault fan really, but I go like, but where their power discourses are at work, uh, you know, within the education system, within government, within big corporations, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, trying to think of a, of a like a practical uh, yeah. <laughs> um, issue here, you know. Um, but, but I think what you're saying is is uh, quite insightful. Um, you know, I keep thinking of. Gosh, I don't know if I want to trip over this issue, but I keep thinking of of some of the trans um, yeah. identity politics. Yeah, you know, which basically says there is no such thing as a woman or as a man outside of our conventions; that it's all a performance. Yeah. Uh, whereas the um, uh, universalist position traditionally would have been, uh, yes, there is, and here is what it is. Mm. Yeah, but and uh, uh, I'm not sure how this the alternative that I'm gonna that I'm gonna offer fits in with your idea of a negative universality. But um, what if there is something um, that is 
universal, but that we can't posit because it only comes to us channeled through particularity, channeled through the particular culture, channeled through the particular place. So say what what man is or masculinity is in you know among the Dagara in Burkina Faso is going to be different from what masculinity is in Ireland and different again from what it is in you know rural Pakistan. Yeah. And but just because it is different in all of these places doesn't mean that people willy-nilly just decide what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, it's still yeah, an, like yeah. an archetypal energy that is translated through our relationships. Here, let me. Uh, let, I'll I'll give you in a ver in a nutshell what I think you know gender kind of is. I'm going to say in a very big nutshell, but um, from this idea of universal negativity, I would want to argue, and I'm not showing the working out here, which is bad, <laughs> um, that there's self division uh, within everything, and so the name for self division in physics is, you know, quantum indeterminacy or, you know, a wave particle duality. Um, the division within biological life is sex and the division within uh, self-consciousness um, is gender. Now, that's a very broad thing, but in other words, a rock has self-division within it at a quantum level. A dog has self-division both as a biological creature, so it's that physics, also as a life form in terms of sex, but then human beings as self-conscious beings have self-division at those two levels, obviously at my bodily level, at my bio level, but also at the level of self-consciousness. And then if if you go with that, and I'll say one should, but if one goes with the idea that gender is a type of uh, response to a lack, a response to a division in the subject, um, then it's kind of like, again, it's kind of not that there's a substantive masculinity and femininity, but but masculinity and femininity in various other ways of identifying or different ways of orienting oneself to a fundamental antagonism within subjectivity. And so, for example, femininity obviously is the idea of, you know, you are the object of desire, masculinity, you want the object of desire, you know, those kind of basic kind of things, but where women... Uh, a femininity can be a sense of performance and masculinity pretense. You know, women pretend to be women, men believe that they're men. But these are these are various responses to a kind of like a type of unique division and subjectivity. So that, that's the way I would begin to approach an answer to the question. Not yeah. a Jungian thing so much like a like a substantive something, but rather <laughs> like Hanian like a response. Yeah. Uh that I think that'd be a very fruitful line of inquiry. So what I would um, do, if you don't, if you don't mind, Charles, if you can just give us uh, maybe two words, if at all, for like, would you have like a minute to maybe yeah. give us your final thought on this? Yeah. Well, and Charles, just would well, you have to go? Just again, lovely to meet you. You know, yeah, likewise. in person. So thank you. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and maybe the because of what I'm what I'm really want to do with these with these episodes is to have people as many people to get as much value of it as possible. So if, if people just sitting, you know, and just just have general, uh, again, political confusion about the perception of, you know, what people say in the media, uh, what would be a healthy place for them to start? Like, what is that thing that they should, you know, consider in their own lives as the as the guiding 
principle that they should focus on? Just go about their life and focus on their job and not worry about what people say on TikTok? Would, would that be one? Or? I would start with a fast. Uh, <laughs> I, I go on a news fast from time to time. Go on a fast and see who you are and how you feel at the end of a week or 10 days or two weeks of no social media or even no news. And then consciously adopt none, some, or all of what before had kind of become unconscious. That's, That's incredible, Charles. Uh, very concise. Again, I'm deeply grateful that you took the time. I know it's a very valuable yeah. moment. Thanks uh, very much. Thank you, Charles. Yep. Thank you, Take everybody. Care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.